This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan. I want to thank everyone who is subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're still seeing great growth, and so much of that is owed to you. Thank you. This is our sixth episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 40, is entitled, A King Finds His Legs. I hope you enjoy the show. As of 1043, there were no Normans on the registry at Royal Charters or Wittons. As early as 1044, there was a Norman as Bishop of London, the infamous Robert of Jumiege, who came over with Edward initially in 1042. Reading the room, as it were, the lack of vocal support for this appointment didn't exactly go unnoticed by Edward. After this appointment, Edward decided to back off on his full restructuring of his kingdom, for a few more years at least. In fact, Edward must have realized that he made a major misstep, a miscalculation that could conceivably foment rebellion down the road should he continue on that trajectory. So, it seems that he overcorrected. In 1045, we start to see him pull the wheel in the opposite direction. We will talk more about this relationship on another episode, but the first huge overcorrection Edward made was to marry Godwin's daughter, Edith. But the other involved Godwin's sons. What could go wrong, right? Well, in walks Swain G.D. Godwinson. Swain Godwinson was a trust fund baby if there ever was one. Swain was that kid who just always seemed to get in trouble in class, but since his father was the principal, he never had any real serious consequences doled out. Swain also liked a little adventure. Judging from his actions and choices later in life, his childhood must have been one escapade after another. And his dad recently grabbed hold of the king's ear and set him up really nice with a cushy, meeting-packed office gig up in the Midlands. Yeah, Swain was an earl now, just like dad. He was in charge. People served him. How hard could it be, anyway? I mean, when you have never really had any responsibility, running an earldom looks like a piece of cake, right? He'd witnessed his dad show up on horseback when his king needed him, or put down the occasional problem around the earldom from time to time. But really, at the end of the day, it was just a bunch of meetings, right? See, in 1046, the Welsh border with England a north-south running boundary called Offa's Dyke that ran along Leofrich's earldom of Mercia and now Swain Godwinson's earldom of the Midlands. Well, this border just went nuclear. Seven years earlier, in 1039, Earl Leofrich's brother, Edwin, was killed in battle against a Welsh upstart chieftain, some rising star named Griffith Apthuelan. 
And by 1046, with this now King Griffith, now capitalizing on his recent acquisition of the Welsh town of Powys near the English border and growing in power every month, mind you, well, Earl Leofrich, needless to say, was no fan of this guy. In fact, Leofrich might have been keeping a very close eye on him and his border with the Welshman. Again, what could go wrong? Well, in 1046, Griffith was ready to make some more moves. Serious moves. And catching wind of this was a bishop named Eldred, who might have already played into our story. Do you remember that one time when King Harthacnut ordered the massacre of the people of the Mercian town of Worcester? Well, Bishop Eldred of Worcester was strongly believed to be the possible someone who tipped the people of Worcester off to flee to that little lily pad in the river while their earls destroyed their town and torched their crops. Bishop Eldred was no slouch, and he mustered up his own force to conduct a preemptive strike across the border. King Griffith wasn't exactly planning on heading into Mercia, where Worcester lay, but this pesky bishop caused him to pause and reconsider. The Welshman's plans were initially meant to head into southern Wales, which bordered the English earldom of the Midlands, whose earl, again, was Swain Godwinson. And Swain must have been finding the life of an earl rather boring, because when the two, that is, Earl Swain and King Griffith, finally made contact, Swain was no sooner on his horse and riding into Wales itching for some action. And remember, there was some serious bad blood between King Griffith and the English up and down off his dyke. But, I mean, we're talking about Swain G.D. Godwin's in here. So Swain throws himself into the mix, allying himself for some raiding with the guy who killed his fellow Earl's brother no more than six years earlier. And has a grand old time doing it, too. Guy's not out. Consequences be damned, right? And, you know, I've read conflicting things about whether Swain was within his rights as an Earl to do such an act without his king's initial knowledge, but I'm going to swing toward the Swain's an idiot camp myself. I mean, if you think about it, Swain Godwinson just committed treason by allying himself with a hostile foreign king without his king's prior consent. And it doesn't exactly scream loyalty, now does it? But see, if you can believe it, that wasn't even the worst of it. Swain Godwinson does a victory lap around South Wales on his way home and thinks to himself, you know what would just top this whole adventure off? A bride. And so Swain stopped by Leominster to, um, you know, allow his soldiers to let off some steam through some good old-fashioned wholesale drinking and debauchery, whether the locals were open to it or not. And on his way out of town, he ordered two of his thanes to run over to the abbey at Leominster and ask that haughty abbess, Edgifu, if she liked him or not. Circle yes or no. Or at least, that's how Swain swung it when he defended his actions later. Unfortunately for Abbess Edgifu, it's not exactly how it happened. There was no option for no to circle. In fact, I doubt that Swain was a guy who heard that word much growing up, and his thanes kidnapped this woman of God and brought her to him against her will. Now, if he would have then had a nice sit-down dinner with her, maybe chatted about their hobbies got to know each other a little bit. I mean, it's still kidnapping, but as for the 11th century dating scene, I'd say it might have sufficed. But again, 
This was Swain G.D. Godwinson. And Swain do what Swain want. And Swain wanted Ed Gifu for a wife. I tend to agree with Ian Walker in his book, Harold, the Last Anglo-Saxon King, that Swain Godwinson's behavior regarding the abbess was, quote, beyond the pale, end quote. Treason against the king was certainly a crime beyond crimes, but we're talking about stealing an actual person here and stealing from God. There's no going back from there. And in the mind of the typical the typical 11th century Christian monarch, if Edward didn't respond swiftly and decisively and harshly to such an imposition to the Almighty, then he was 100% complicit in the ordeal. The king was absolutely livid at, at this clown's behavior, but there was a temperance in him that was commendable. He started by issuing an order to return Edgifu to her abbey. I mean, a royal demand isn't something even an earl would entertain defying. And, of course, Swain refused. Because, well, my daddy's an earl, that's why. I mean, the guy probably walked around his estate de-pantsing and sack-checking every squire or laborer he saw, and then laughing loudly and high-fiving himself, screaming O'Doyle rules. He kept her for one year, if you can imagine, presumably against her will the whole time. And God only knows what he did to her while she was in his custody, but the darkest parts of the imagination, unfortunately, probably point in the right direction. The records, thankfully, mercifully, are pretty silent about it. Honestly, I doubt anyone, even then, really wanted to know the truth, despite how they might have wanted to slander the heck out of that jerk. Keep in mind that the people writing all these records were the clergy, as they were largely the only literate people around. Steel and Abbas? Woman or not, she was one of their own, period. Hmm. So after a year, this poor woman was released back to her abbey, and Swain received his marching orders. Yeah, Edward exiled him. And see, exile, as you probably know, was kind of a big deal. Kind of like a a red card in soccer, you know. You just cost your team some serious ground in this whole game, and you brought shame upon the club, not just yourself. And there's no question whether Godwin was furious or not, but he probably had just as much fury toward Edward as he did toward his own son. And so Swain Godwinson left England. He arrived in Flanders seeking asylum a short while later. This was in 1047. Also in 1047, Swain Estrison, back in Denmark, was leading an uprising against the joint rulership of Norway's King Magnus the Good and his battle-hardened, wealthy, popular, and GQ cover model, King Harold II Sigurdsson. And Swain had sent plea after plea to to King Edward to send help. The Wends were still smarting from their debilitating defeat a few years earlier, and were very reluctant to help Swain Estrison again. And Swain was banking everything he had on Uncle Godwin's influence in England to leverage some of that good old Anglo-Saxon wealth and muscle. But see, don't forget that Magnus the Good had been sending threatening messages to Edward about a Norwegian invasion since Edward was crowned. And Edward, having heard reports of Magnus increasing the size of his forces, wanted nothing to do with that mess. And again... Godwin was ticked. This was not how this was supposed to go in Godwin's mind. 
Godwin had a plan, and it looked like the one Sherlock on his influence, that is Edward, was starting to grow a bit of a backbone. So Godwin took matters into his own hands. If he couldn't have England now, then he would assist his nephew to bolster support in Denmark and then deal with this wayward king later. Godwin sent a small fleet to Flanders to pick up his exile son, Swain, with strict orders to hurry up to Denmark to help Swain Esterson's efforts. The cousin is on his way to help. And Edward, no doubt, looked at how quickly and easily Godwin sent those ships off against his orders, though well within the Earl's rights, as they were, in fact, the Earl's ships and men. And Edward must have taken a quick mental note of it. As a quick aside, when researching this choice of Godwin's to act of his own accord against the wishes of his king, I wondered how this was any different than Swain's action, actions as Earl of the Midlands. It's worth a quick look, especially since it highlights the experience and leadership of Godwin versus his son, Swain. And there is a vast difference here, too. See, both earls chose to partner up with a king of a different kingdom. And both earls made this choice against the stance taken by their King Edward. Edward wanted nothing to do with both Wales and Denmark. But see, the difference is that Godwin sent aid to Denmark, who is not a declared enemy of the state, whereas Swain Godwinson, ever the diva, didn't think big picture like his father. Earl Swain saw an opportunity to fill his own pockets, gain a little acclaim as a warrior, and then swing by to grab one of God's betrothed on his victory lap toward the Midlands. And Swain, most importantly, had sided with the murderer of an English earl's brother, thus making this Welsh king an enemy of the, an enemy of the state, an enemy of England. And therein lies the difference between Godwin and his firstborn, Godwin's own heir. Godwin could see the 30,000-foot view. Swain, he couldn't see past his own nose. So back to the scene in question, the event in which Edward gave Swain Godwinson the boot and Earl Godwin sent a fleet to Denmark. Where was Godwin's second-born Harold? Well, to begin, where we last left him, Harold Godwinson was the Earl of East Anglia. Edward noted that Earl Harold had sailed to the southern and southeastern coasts of the kingdom also without royal approval, but still well within his power. And Edward was certainly for the actions as England's coastlines were being harassed by Germanic pirates. So it's not like Earl Harold was acting against the kingdom's wishes. He acted of his own will and taken it upon himself to rid the island of the Germanic threat. Win-win as far as Edward was concerned. Harold, the king thought, he isn't so bad for a Godwinson. And Harold, being completely unsupportive of his father's pleas to the king to reinstate Swain Godwinson and forgive him of his sins all these years, well, that most definitely made Edward smile. But something still didn't quite sit right about Harold's actions, as right as they were. See, it came down to these Godwins and their influence over and access to England's naval fleet, ships full of English soldiers. That didn't sit right. Table that one. In the meantime, Edward had an earldom to deal with, the now vacant Midlands. Edward threw Earl Godwin a bone by divvying up the Midlands between Earl Harold and the new Earl Bjorn Estherson, giving Earl Harold the portion bordering Wales. 
Harold seemed like a good kid, someone who wouldn't put up with much nonsense, a guy not afraid to tell his dad no from time to time. And Bjorn seemed trustworthy enough, as he hadn't run back to help his brother Swain Estherson in Denmark either. But the records are quiet about why or why not. And then one of those events happened that just changed everything. Magnus the Good, having just made an alliance with his much more experienced uncle, the absolute hottie Harold II Sigurdsson, to be co-equals as kings of Norway. Didn't exactly like the idea of sharing a kingdom he'd fought so hard for, but Uncle Harold was battle-hardened and at the head of a huge force of nearly equally battle-hardened Rus, Swedish, and Norwegian mercenaries. He also brought along some of those Varangians from Constantinople, too. Sometimes leadership is a straight shot to the end, and other times leadership is a winding path in which you take as many setbacks as you do steps forward. A deal was in Magnus's best interests here. Uncle Harold was no one to take lightly, make no mistake about that. Harold Sigurdsson's exploits in the Varangian Guard were already pretty well known around the North Sea area. Word traveled fast, even in 11th century. It was a matter of weeks, though, and Magnus the Good wound up dead at the young age of 23. So let me get this straight. Uncle Harold comes back from serving in the tumultuous and extremely deadly worlds of Kievan Rus territory, the Anatolian highlands, and the deserts of the Middle East, as well as fighting pirates off the coast of the Holy Land, not to mention fighting the incomparable Normans in Italy and the fierce Saracens in Sicily. So, after collecting his savings from Grand Prince Yaroslav of Kiev, as well as marrying the guy's daughter on the way out, he arrives in Norway and demands the crown. One deal, and a few weeks later, and he's the sole ruler of this homeland. Nope. Checks out. And King Harold declares all-out war against Swain Esterson in Denmark, claiming that through his agreement with Magnus, he is also 100% entitled to Denmark. And this stuff right here, this argument as to why Harold Sigurdsson is entitled to Denmark through someone else's agreement with someone else entirely beyond that, this is the kind of stuff that allows Normans to do whatever they want in just under a decade. So that's something else to tuck away and put somewhere safe for a bit. Oblivious to the obvious rationale that could potentially put his own kingdom in jeopardy one day, Edward breathed a little sigh of relief because Magnus's plans for England have been derailed, and Norway and Denmark are slap-fighting hundreds of miles east across the North Sea. And it was really between the years that Harold Sigurdsson was king of Norway that we begin to hear of his harsh, militaristic rule, understandably a byproduct of his many, many hard years in exile, beginning in his war with Swain Estrison after the year 1047, King Harold II Sigurdsson of Norway will forever become known as Harold Hardrada, meaning hard ruler. Harold Hardrada ruled with an iron fist. He had a war to win. He had Canute's North Sea Empire to rejoin, probably hearing about it from his nephew before his <coughs> uh, hmm, sad and untimely death due to completely natural causes and not any foul play whatsoever. Yeah. Again, checks out. <laughs> 
Let's move on. And here's the other thing about this ordeal between Norway and Denmark. The exiled Swain Godwinson was fighting with some more of Godwin's men on the side of Denmark. And who knows what prompted this, but it took this jackleg all of one year to get ousted from Denmark, too. Yeah, something forced Swain Estrusen to officially exile Swain G.D. Godwinson from Denmark. So, back to Flanders he goes, where he spends some time in court. Learning, listening, probably hearing about the problems in Lotharingia to the south and east of Flanders. Lotharingia is one of those forgotten kingdoms of old, but it certainly existed. It spanned more or less north-south, from Flanders in the north to Burgundy in the south, acting as a thin buffer zone between the Franks and the Germans, or officially the Kingdom of France and the Holy Roman Empire. The lands of Belgium and the Netherlands, Lorraine and France, parts of Switzerland, and into northern Italy as far as the, the middle of the mighty Alps mountain range were, for all intents and purposes, that's where Lotharingia was located. And the Lotharingians were causing trouble for the Holy Roman Empire at the time, which certainly made the French and by extension the Normans pretty nervous. These things had a way of spilling over into other areas. And Swain Godwinson was no, had no doubt heard the news of Normandy and its embattled young duke having just won a major victory over his opposition near Cain at the Battle of Valles Doom. Have a listen to episode 26 titled William the Duke for that chapter. And with such a victory came a chance for expansion of influence, and this young duke, who went by the name of William, though Swain Godwinson was probably already aware of his other name, William the Bastard, was bringing negotiations to Count Baldwin IV of Flanders about a marriage agreement with Baldwin's own daughter, Matilda. Though Swain Godwinson spent his time towel-snapping other dudes in the locker room, he wasn't a complete idiot. Guys like this do some pretty idiotic things, but it takes brains to be a madman. And Swain, he had a bit of madman in him. And then came word that Swain had been invited back, conditionally, of course, by King Edward. And it was crystal clear what happened here. Swain's daddy bailed him out again. And when Swain came back home, Edward gave him his lands back in the Midlands. Godwin was happy. Swain was happy. Edward was... Well, Edward was trying not to tick off his wealthiest and most influential earl too badly, I'd imagine. But there were two people who had a serious problem with this move. And their names were not Leofrich and Seward, the longtime and powerful earls of Mercia and Northumbria. No, they were Swain's own kin. Earl Harold of East Anglia and the West Midlands, and Earl Bjorn Esterson of the East Midlands. Edward had divvied up Swain's earldom, remember. And these guys wouldn't budge. Earl Bjorn of the East Midlands took a bit of the Midlands to his south, while Earl Harold of East Anglia accepted control of the westernmost lands of the Midlands, namely the regions bordering Wales. So Swain was given the scraps of his former earldom back. And in the middle of it all, that Welshman across the dike was acting up again. But this time, he was making moves and murdering his enemies left and right, and he was dangerously close to the border. 
But if left to his own devices, King Griffith might actually succeed in conquering all of Wales by 1049-ish. And this would be a problem for the English. England had fomented just enough trouble in Wales over the centuries to keep it fragmented, though the Welsh were fiercely independent enough on their own, so it didn't really take too much work to keep them fighting each other. But this King Griffith was becoming a serious thorn in England's side, especially Earl Leofric of Mercia, and now Earl Harold, who had assumed his brother's borderlands two years earlier. And so as Swain Godwinson made his way back to the court of Edward, he arrived to a bit of a quagmire he wasn't at all that innocent in creating, having helped King Griffith establish more of a foothold in South Wales through his weekend romp through Snowdonia. And everyone remembered. So... Awkward, right? Swain met his father and his cousin Earl Bjorn along the south coast of Wessex. The plan was to have Earl Godwinson and Earl Leofrich pierce the Welsh border from the east, while Godwin led his men with all those ships from the south and west. But there was one catch. Swain Godwinson needed to meet with the king, and he had no assurances that he would be received safely. A welcome back didn't mean he would be very welcome when he arrived, and judging by the small fleet of mercenaries he had moored and waiting on him, it's pretty clear that he knew as much. So after much discussion, Swain was able to convince his father to let Bjorn, his cousin, escort him, along with three of Bjorn's men, back to the king's presence. So what if Bjorn was one of the main people in England not okay with Swain's return, as evidenced by his outright refusal to give lands back to Swain when ordered by the king? Something in route went sideways, because the next thing the records tell us is that Swain got Bjorn and those three men on board one of his own ships. And Bjorn and those three men ended up buried at a church down the coast. No one has any idea why Swain Godwinson killed his cousin, but I have to hand it to the incomparable Jamie Jeffers over at the British History Podcast, who laid out his idea uh, that, to paraphrase him, just might have been a caper gone bad. So, as far as I understand it, in my own words, not Jeffers, um, he got me thinking about this possibility. Where did Swain just come back from? Flanders. And Flanders was quickly increasing their standing in the area, becoming a bit of their own little powerhouse in the region. And the Godwin family had some pretty tight bonds with Count Baldwin V. And again, by extension, now Normandy, since Duke William was now married to Matilda, the new count's sister by this time. See, Flanders also had something to gain from Norway fighting Denmark, insofar as it kept their neighbor, Denmark, occupied, while they soaked up all the influence from France, Normandy, and the German kingdom. What better than to offer up to Harold Hardrada, the brother of his enemy, for ransom? I don't know. I, th there might be a, a big power play in there somewhere, and it seems that Godwin was caught completely unawares. But either way, kinslaying was quite possibly one of the worst crimes of the times. And King Edward, he was done with this punk kid. Godwin or not, Swain was out again. But this time, King Edward announced him a nithing, a Scandinavian word that quite literally meant that Swain was a person without humanity. 
Swain was reduced to an animal, if you will. Since he was subhuman, he was without the protection of any law on earth or from God, and therefore subject to whatever fate came to him. Imagine Godwin's reaction. This was the moment Edward needed, though it was only the start. Edward needed a chance to establish himself in his own kingdom. For almost seven years, Edward was publicly in the shadow of his great earl, the juggernaut Godwin. But to declare this man's eldest son his heir, a nithing, in a society based on primogeniture succession, again, succession going first to the eldest son, this was not just an attack on Swain. This was damn near an attack on Godwin himself. Godwin's honor was at stake here. Regardless of whether Swain Godwinson had deserved it or not, Edward had made the declaration, and it, was, it would be Edward that would feel Godwin's heat. Edward was about to do something no one saw coming, though. He was finding his legs as king. He was about to truly become king of England. Edward? Edward was planning to kick out the formidable house of Godwin. I hope you enjoyed this installment and sixth episode in the new season, where we center our story around the fallout of Canute's death and the two-decade upheaval happening around the North Sea. I'm pretty excited about this season, and I sincerely hope you are both entertained and learning while we lay out the story, our story, of the Middle Ages. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast hosting service or app. Also, don't be a stranger. You can reach me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as email at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. We have a lot in store for the show this year, including bonus episodes that will fill in any backstory we're unable to tuck in during each episode, which will be found on Patreon. So I highly encourage you to become a Patreon supporter for as low as just a couple bucks per month. My 2021 goal is for this podcast to be 100% ad-free and listener-supported. So please, if you find the show at all worthwhile, then I ask that you continue to share the show. Thank you so much for your support. You can tell a lot about a person when it comes to how they spend their time. Thank you for spending this time learning about our collective story. Until next time.